Welcome, friends. So glad to have you along for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and then put into practice. I'm Gwen DeSelm, and it is my privilege to be your host for these moments together. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry, planting, growing, and leading a church. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as a blog, devotionals, coaching, speaking, and more. You can find out more about us at davedesomeministries.org. Well, today we come to the final episode of our series on the parables of Jesus. And appropriately, we'll be looking at the last parable that Jesus told before his crucifixion. It's a sobering story about what's really going to matter in the end when we stand before the Lord. Here's Dave with the parable of the sheep and the goats. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. There are certain regrets in life that can only come under the category of, if only I'd known. Lee Strobel tells the story of how his father had one of those, if only I'd known moments. True story. He said his dad was approached some years back by a former paper cup salesman who said he had a surefire deal for this guy to invest in. $950, guaranteed, surefire deal. Well, this guy had been around the block many times. He thought, there is no way I'm going to give close to $1,000 for some half-baked scheme. Well, it so happens that it wasn't a half-baked scheme. It was a half-fried scheme because the former paper cup salesman's name was Ray Kroc. And he'd asked the man if he'd like to invest in a little enterprise called McDonald's. And Lee said, every time I tell the story about my dad, since I'm his only heir, I cry, if only he'd known, if only he'd known. Then there's a story about Mark Twain. He was returning from a very successful fishing trip up in Maine. Three weeks of fishing with only one wrinkle. It was after the season had closed. Nonetheless, he'd really done well. And so on the train ride from Maine back to Missouri, he decided to boast a little bit about how well he'd caught with the only other person sitting in the club car with him. For some reason, the guy wasn't all that enthusiastic. So Mark Twain asked him, by the way, who are you? And the guy said, I'm the game warden of the state of Maine. Who are you? At which time, Mark Twain, nearly swallowing his cigar, said, Well, Warden, the fact is, I'm the biggest liar in the United States of America. That's who I am. (laughs) If only he'd known, eh? There's probably not one of us here who hasn't said things or not said things that they regret, done things or not done things that they regret. But I think the ultimate regret is what you open your Bibles to. The ultimate regret will be along the lines of a story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago. And I think it's the single most sobering of all his stories of the kingdom. Matthew 25, take a look, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, 
He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, and I think this is one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible. Take a look at verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Welcome to my world, huh? That's a pretty frightening parable, wouldn't you say? I've been grappling with all that it means, and I don't know that I still have fully drilled down to all of it, but I can tell you there's enough here that should, not, that should cause every person in this room to think hard and fast about what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. For one thing, as you look at this parable, it portrays a moment of judgment. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term describing himself, especially as he really rules as king, sitting on the throne. It talks about the time when at long last the kingdom will have come in all of its fullness. And all the nations, all people will be brought before the Lord to be separated at a time of judgment. Now nearly all of Jesus' parables, as we've been learning, is rooted in reality. And this one is no different. It was very common in those days for herdsmen to have mixed herds of sheep and goats. It was far more economic to have them all together. Beyond that, the goats by nature were far more restless and they would keep the flock, the herd, moving to good pasturing. But at night, the sheep were far more hardy and could stand the cold temperatures than the goats were. They required some degree of shelter. So every night, literally, the shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. Thus, Jesus' audience readily understood what he was saying here. But it's a very clear point the Savior's making. There will come a time when you will be in the herd. There will come a time of judgment for you too. Now this time of this word judgment is very unpopular in these politically correct days. Yet the Bible is quite clear that that day is going to happen for every one of us. If you'd like to jot down a few references on your notes, there's plenty of room. Take a look at just these and just write down the numbers if you wish. Isaiah 66, 16. The Lord will execute judgment upon all men. Hebrews 9, 27. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. By the way, that single verse is the biggest argument against reincarnation. 
None of this go around a second time. You die once, and then you're going to stand before God. Romans 14.10, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Friends, the Bible states quite categorically that that time will come. Every person who has walked this earth will stand before God and be judged. And it makes a very dramatic statement about that. According to verse 34 of this text you looked at, some will be invited into the kingdom. And according to verse 41, some will not be. They will be sent to a place of eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, as you might imagine, people have grappled with this idea of judgment down through the years, especially with this idea of how it's determined in this parable. Because when you look at verses 35 and 36, look what it says. And this is what has troubled theologians as well as just typical Bible readers. Look again at verses 35 and 36. He's calling some in, and then he says in 35, for because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked the other way, and you looked after me, that is. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Because of that behavior, it would appear that he's saying, come in. Conversely, when you look down at verses 42 and 43, some of you will not be invited in. And then he says, for I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. Now, as you might imagine, Many people have struggled with this parable down through the years, and my guess is there's many of you who are struggling with what it appears to be saying. Because it appears to be saying that salvation is based upon what you do. It's based upon your works, how you perform. Yet you've also been taught, I've taught you for 27 years, and many of you have learned on your own, that that's not what the Bible says. The Bible's very clear that we are saved by faith. True? John 1.12, take a look. Yet to all who received him... To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice, to all who believed. John 3.16, which you're probably familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever, what's it say? Believes in him might have eternal life. The Apostle Paul carries this theme in some of his New Testament epistles. Take a look at a couple of them. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. In fact, let's read this out loud and together. Lifting your eyes and your voices together. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Notice it says here, not because of things we've done, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Again, together. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Are you seeing some tension here between these words and the parable of the sheep and the goats? How does this all square? If it is by faith, if it is by believing, what's the deal about the sheep and the goats? When it appears that there were some actions involved. Part of the solution is found when you continue reading what these verses, uh, how these verses continue. For example, let's look back at Titus. Just look at it again. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy, that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. 
Watch how it continues. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Huh. The Ephesians text that we read together. Let's look at it again. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Continuing, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Is this beginning to come, it all make all sense? Look at it this way. While we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. While we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. That is to say, when there has truly been a bona fide transformation of your heart and soul, it naturally must flow out to your hands and feet. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Paul is saying. This is what James says. His whole book is basically this. Talks cheap. Talks cheap. So now when you look at this, what's the Savior saying? Listen, genuine faith is, genuine faith is necessarily connected to good works. Listen, not good works in order to, but good works because of. You with me? Not good works in order to, but good works because of. In light of my life having been changed by my faith, the Holy Spirit taking up residence by his grace, it should naturally result in actions and deeds that glorify God and benefit mankind. This is what Jesus is saying here. At the judgment, it will be clear that for some people, they were nothing but talk. The single most frightening verse in the New Testament, to my way of thinking, is Matthew 7.21. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. The parable of the sheep and goats is where Jesus, near the end of his ministry, sees a lot of hangers-on, a lot of people who love all the benefits, who love the words, but are not committed to be his followers. And he gives a sharp, sharp parable. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Dave Sell Ministries depends on the generosity of people like you. If you've been blessed by these messages, consider giving a gift to DDM. Just go to our website, davedesellministries.org and click on the donate button. In addition to this podcast, Dave DeSalm Ministries offers other resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as devotionals for everyday disciples. These devotionals are filled with inspiration from God's Word that will encourage you as you follow Jesus every day. 
Go to davedesellministries.org and you can browse through the over 150 devotionals found there. Now let's get back to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. Now, the second thing that makes this parable a struggle for me is this. When he does list the actions he's looking for, notice what example he uses. He does not say this, I am calling you to not merely be word Christian, but deed Christians. Therefore, go to church a lot. It's not what he says here. Therefore, read your Bible through every year. That's not what he says here. Therefore, meet with Christian fellow believers and go to a lot of good concerts. That's not what he says here. He doesn't even say, rid yourself of all the grosser sins. Now, mark it well. I am not against any of those. So don't quote me on that. But those are not the examples that he uses. What's the example he uses? If you've got the real deal, it will be seen by your compassion to the poor and the needy and the homeless and the hungry and the widow and the orphan. That was the example he used. He could have used any other example. He used that one. He used that one. The separating of the sheep and the goats. Notice Jesus does not say, I tell you, some of you were brutal to poor people. Some of you small business owners didn't pay good wages. Some of you took advantage of the widows. You were slum landlords. You were bad. He doesn't say anything He never once says, you did bad stuff. You know what he says? You didn't do any good stuff. You saw the need, and you looked away. And then you walked away. They were hungry, and they were homeless, and they were poor. And there was a widow, and there was the orphan, and there was the prisoner, and you walked away. You decided that you were willing to invest in a bigger car, a newer home, a better vacation, but it wasn't worth to invest in people who had need. And this is what Jesus uses as an example. You thought it wouldn't matter. And Jesus said, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did or didn't do it to me. By the way, that word brother right there, it does not mean blood relation. Neither does it mean someone who shares your faith. The Greek word means any other human being. Outside your family, outside your church, outside your faith. Welcome to my world, friends. See what I've been struggling with this week? I mean, is he serious? Is he really serious here? I think he is. I think he is. And for all that I don't understand about this parable, I have to say, I get what he's saying, at least in part. At least in part. So what do we do? How do we grapple with this? If this is what Jesus is looking for from those he calls his disciples. How can you and I begin to develop more compassionate hearts? Well, let me give you just one short answer to that. You have to get out 
of your house. You have to get out of your comfort zone and into a hurting world. You just do. The thing is, friends, that is no small challenge. Listen, that which is comfortable and convenient and safe and secure draws us like a magnet. We look for ways. We hope to move away from pain, don't we? We hope to get away from suffering. We hope to insulate and isolate ourselves from that which is ugly and horrible. It marks where we live, where we shop, where we play. It marks where we send our kids to school. It even marks where you choose to go to church. And I think Jesus is challenging me here by saying this. As long as you keep yourself in that comfort, convenient, safe, and secure cocoon, you'll never see the poor and the needy. They'll be totally off your radar screen because you will be surrounded by nothing but beautiful people. And as long as you stay isolated, cocooned, and sheltered, you'll never see them. And if you never see them, you'll never serve them. The only way, friends... To get outside of ourselves is to get outside of our houses. And that means to intentionally relate to those who are different. Different cultures, different races, different economics, different educations. To get out into the world where Jesus seemed to lean the most, the world of the margins. He was always predisposed to lean that way. Getting into a hurting world. Here's the deal. Those who have begun to get this would say, it was only when I got outside my house that I began to learn it. Typically, the lives that have become more compassionate were those people who took a mission trip to a third world country or took a local trip to another neighborhood in their city and for the first time, hurting people had faces and names. And you realize it wasn't just a world It was that person and that person and that person. And until and unless you do that, I can preach all day long. You can read every great devotional book. You can watch every documentary film because what will change your heart is when you experience it firsthand. Firsthand. Last night, a group of us got together as Joe came, shared a bit about Congo. And it was a wonderful time to spend a few hours together. But there was such... Tenderness in the room and such emotion, even some tears, as Joe shared. And the reason why, because, because every person in that room had been there. Joe didn't have to create some kind of a dramatic story. He just mentioned names. And the tears flow because those were our friends. Now, not of all of you can go to Congo. But you can get outside your house. You can get to another neighborhood. You can open your eyes to that which is around you. You can determine, I will not be a comfortable Christian any longer. Until and unless we do, we will ever be swept back into comfort and convenience, safety and security. It's a powerful magnet. It is a powerful magnet among Christians. They opt for what is easy, not for what is challenging. When your eyes are opened, then you begin to see the widow who has no one to help her, the single mom who is so 
tired. The boy who has no dad to teach him how to throw. The little girl who has no person who can teach her how to cook. That's how to be a lady. And only as those who see with the eyes of Jesus that it's all around them, only as they do that, do they begin to start grasping what the Savior is saying here. Faith in me is expressed by the compassion that I show. Friends, I'm absolutely convinced that if you will regularly get outside your house, outside what is comfortable and convenient, safe and secure, and begin to serve and give and love those in the margins, eventually it won't require me to challenge you much anymore. You know why? It could be right here. It'll be inside of you. By the same token, I can tell you this. If you do not take dramatic steps to challenge the safety, security, comfort, and convenience of contemporary Christianity, you will not do it. You just won't. And the day will come, apart from any divine judgment, when you will regret in standing before Jesus not the bad stuff you did do, but the good stuff you didn't do. If you hold on to this, I can promise you that you will not regret one moment you spent, one dollar you gave, one tear you shed, or one prayer you prayed. And when you stand before him, the one who himself leaned into the suffering, I think you just may hear these words. Well done. Come now and inherit the kingdom that I have prepared for you. Thank you so much for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.